How do you do? Mr. Brian Peters feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast, gravely amusing, without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold an episode from the mind of Brian Peters, a fan of pop culture who sought to create a podcast after his own image, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest podcasts ever listened to. It deals with two great fandoms of pop culture, humor, and horror. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such strain, now's your chance to... Well, we warned you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gravely Amusing, the only pop culture podcast that doesn't judge you for that hidden box of Hostess cupcakes in your desk drawer. That's because when you're not at work, I'm eating a few. Tonight's episode is on the greatest monster still alive after thousands of years. Even after they were buried alive, set on fire, shot six times. I shot him six times. And even given the finger. Yes, I'm talking about my friend Tyler's mommy. Just kidding. If I was, it would be a lot scarier. Nope, I'm talking about Universal's classic monster, the mommy. Now, I have to warn you listeners, I'm not holding back on this episode. I I really never hold it back on anything, as my family and friends can, can, can vouch for me. So if you're a fan of the classic Universal version of the mommy, um, well, honestly, we get two versions of the mummy in this classic era. Uh, you're allowed to love it. Totally. Hey, it's your thing. It's what you love. Um, but I don't. I, I do not. And I don't think I was the only one uh, that doesn't like it. Because critics back in the day, in, in the 30s and 40s, they didn't like this monster really either. And But I'm gonna, I can't vouch for them. I'm going to tell you why. I am not a fan. And it might be because... Uh, I grew up in the 90s, and when I was 13 years old in 1999, Stephen Summers rebooted the Mummy franchise with Brendan Fraser, Billy Zane, um, and it was freaking awesome. Um, so good. Uh, they're so dang good. And in my opinion, they're definitive, they're definitive version of the Mummy, like hands down. Now, if you disagree with me, uh, let me remind you what that franchise did. Uh, It made a lot of money. (laughs) It resulted in a lot of toys, uh, resulted in video games, an animated series, uh, Mummy the Animated Series. Uh, Even Mummies Alive was created because of it. Um, It launched so much interest in mummies in general and Egyptian culture that... No other mummy movie done before it or really after. I mean, it even launched Dwayne Johnson, The Rock's career. And it cemented Brendan Fraser as the man 
of the 90s. Um, and now Brennan is finally having a resurgence and he darn well deserves it. And this movie is a great example of why he is so, so good. Um, now, you know, you can say to me that it's not Boris Karloff. And you're right. It's not Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff was a one-at-a-time, like, one-in-a-million-years uh, actor. And the way he looked in horror movies, just unreal. I mean, I already told you that Frankenstein's monster is my favorite universal monster, and it's because of Boris. But Boris has the mummy. It just... It's just it's just not good enough, bro. It's not. It's not good enough. Um and it just it just it just didn't work. In the original 1932 film, Boris, this is one of the main reasons why why I'm not I'm not sold on this. Because in the original 1932 film, Boris is only in Jack Pierce's amazing makeup. Freaking love Jack Pierce. I'm never gonna shut up about how much I love Jack Pierce. The man-made monsters love you. Um, Boris was only in that makeup for like five to ten minutes of that whole damn movie. He's only in mummy garb for five to ten minutes. Like, what the hell? The rest of the film, uh, he does look creepy. He's got that fez on. You know, he's got that hypnotic stare. Um, but he's just posing as some rich Egyptian trying to get some after his girl died thousands of years ago. So, like, the dude's just... You know, he just wants he wants some loving, you know. <laughs> so he's just a creepy old dude wanting to be with a woman old enough to be his great 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 and maybe twenty more greats uh, daughter granddaughter. Yeah, you know, it's just inappropriate, man. Like a dude that's like old enough to be someone's grandpa. Like it's just, it's weird, man. I'm sorry. It's just, it's weird. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, to alienate people. It's just, that's not enough to be your grandpa. Like, like, no, no. Anyway, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so let's get to talking about these movies. Uh, this grumpy old man needs a nap as much as his mommies do. Nineteen thirty-two, Mummy. The film sucks. I mean, it's not as bad as others, but it's boring. There's no fun characters, and did I mention we only see Boris in the mummy form for five to ten minutes, if that? Let Let me tell you why the classic Universal monster film versions are are just missed opportunities. Let Let, let me break it down for you. The Mummy, starring the legendary Boris Parker car in the lot. I don't know what I was going with that joke. I apologize. <laughs> Boris Pakika. I don't know. Boris isn't from Boston. Uh, pa- Boris Ka. Karloff. Pakika. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm stupid. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So the, so the mummy was inspired by the opening of Tutankhamun or King Tut's tomb in 1922. So if you don't know about King Tut, 
uh, probably the most famous pharaoh and pop culture or just history um, other than ones like, you know, Ramses and Ramses II, you know, in the Bible or whatever. Like, if there's one pharaoh that people know about, it's King Tut. Uh, and he was 18 years old when he became pharaoh. Um, so much Egyptian culture and history is so gosh darn fascinating. Um, I love it. If you want to play a video game and result to it, uh, play Assassin's Creed Origins. Uh, yes, I own it and I haven't played it yet, but I know what it's about. Um, just, you know, Egyptian culture is just uh, it's so freaking cool. Sorry. Um, but it's inspired by the opening of King Tut's tomb and the curse of the pharaohs. So what the curse of the pharaoh basically is, is if a person uh, disrupts or desecrates a tomb, a crypt, casket, coffin, jar, uh, anything from a burial site in Egypt, especially from a pyramid, they will be cursed by the Egyptian gods uh, and they will surely die. Sometimes this curses can be uh, boils on the skin, uh, plague of bugs, stuff like that. They will be cursed and they will most certainly die, which sounds freaking awesome. Like, I'm sold. Like, you're going to make a movie about based on, like, Egyptian curses and mummies and stuff. So cool. Totally. I'm totally in, right? It sounds scary. And I'm sure everybody in 1931 or 30, you know, when they filmed this, were really excited. I mean, yeah, I would have been, especially if you're casting Boris Karloff. Like, he's amazing. So, uh, producer Carl Mill Jr., he commissioned story editor Richard Shire to find a novel to form a basis for this Egyptian-themed horror film. Uh, you know, because they use the novel Dracula, they use the novel Frankenstein, and the 1931 films. Uh, problem was that there was no novel on mummies and story based on that. So, and I'm really grateful that there's no novel because uh, when this podcast airs, my birthday is in two days and uh, movies with books attached or, or an extra podcast, uh, even though I put it as a part of a podcast or like part of the episode, uh, it's a lot more work. <laughs> so uh, I'm just, I'm grateful for the mummy and this, even though the movies are rough, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, just talking about the movies tonight. So, anywho, yeah, the problem was there was no novels. So they had to come up with fresh ideas. And if you don't have very creative people on your team, you know, um, you know, you're, I don't know, you're going to have something. So they try to base it on the short story by Arthur Cohen Doyle, the guy that created Sherlock Holmes. Amazing author, right? Uh, he wrote a short story called The Ring of Toth. So it's a story about a man that actually uh, falls asleep in a museum and he ends up getting trapped in it. And when he wakes, there's a strange fellow in the museum with him that claims to be an ancient Egyptian who has found the elixir of immortality. And he didn't give get the chance to give it to his lost love. So uh, Shoyer or whatever also learned... Um, Besides that story, he learned about uh, this ca uh, a character named uh, Alessandro Cagliostro. Cagliostro? 
I bet you that that character in Spawn, in Tom McFarlane's Spawn, uh, Caligostro is based on this guy, I bet you. Um, but it's a story set in San Francisco that's about a 3,000-year-old magician who survives by injecting nitrates into his body. So it's like um, almost like a life life preservative compound. It's um, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Just just look up nitrates. But basically, nitrates um, are like a preservative, and you know keeps them alive. You know whatever works. So Carl Jr. Uh, liked the idea, and he hired John L. Balderson to write the script. Uh, Dash. Uh, and contributed to Dracula and Frankenstein. And ironically, this dude covered the opening of King Tut's tomb for the New York world when he was a journalist. So he was more than familiar with the story and how the tomb looked and stuff. Like, it it seems like a win-win, right? So uh, Balderson moved the story to Egypt, and he renamed, renamed the film and his title character uh, Imhotep a historical architect who is a high priest of the sun god Ra. Imhotep is also referred to as the god of medicine uh, in some in some, uh, in some texts. So he also changed the story from a movie about revenge upon all the women who resembled the main character's ex-lover uh, to where the mummy is determined to revive his old love by killing her, mummifying her, and reincarnating her uh, and putting the soul of his old love into the new body with the spell from the the scroll of Toth. So Barson invented this scroll of Toth, which which gave an aura of uh, authenticity to the story. Uh, But I guess he, like, how does he really create the scroll of Toth um, when he kind of stole it from Arthur Quinn Doyle, but you know, whatever. Um, but Toth is actually the wisest of the Egyptian gods. And according to Egyptian mythology, when Osiris died, um, uh, Toth helped I- Isis bring her love back from the dead. So Toth is also believed to have written the book of the dead itself, which may have been the inspiration for Barson's scroll Toth, which, you know, of course it was, because, I mean, the freaking Book of the Dead. Um, speaking of the Book of the Dead, I I look forward to in future seasons, uh, if this show takes off, hopefully it does, uh, to talk about the evil dead and the Book of the Dead there and deadheads and stuff like that. I think that would be really fun. So this story is sounding pretty good. You know, Book of the Dead, mummies, you know, curses, cool stuff. It, it sounds awesome. So we need a director. So they hire that Carl Fruden dude. He was a cinematographer on Dracula. This was his first film in the United States as a director. Uh, Fruden was also the cinematographer on Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which is a true sci-fi epic. I, I have actually never seen it. I've seen movie posters for it. I've seen clips of it. Um, it is a sci-fi classic. And I need to watch it um, because I feel kind of hypocritical that I haven't watched it. Um, I suck as a podcaster. Uh, no, I don't. I'm actually doing pretty good. Uh, I need to stop uh, picking on myself. I, I apologize. So anyway, be nice to yourself. 
I, I will, you do it too. So this Carl Frew dude, um, he cast Zeta Johan, who believed in reincarnation, uh, and he named her character Ankh-Esa Amon, after the only wife of Pharaoh Tutankhamun. The real Ankh-Esnamon's, sorry, I'm having trouble pronouncing this, uh, body had not been discovered in the tomb of King Tut, and her resting place was unknown. So based on the missing wife of King Tut, they they threw that in the script. So once again, it was smart writing. I thought that was kind of a cool concept. Um, they couldn't probably use the name King Tut, so they used Imhotep. You know, it's, it's, it's working. It's cool. It's fun. Uh, filming began in September 1932. It was scheduled for three weeks. So this movie came out later in 1932. I'm very sorry. I forget what date it came out. I, I apologize. Uh, Carlos' first day on set was spent shooting the mummy's awakening scene from his sarcophagus. And it's his only freaking scene as an actual mummy in this whole movie. Really pisses me off. I'm sorry. <laughs> so they probably figured, uh, let's call this the mummy and get Boris in makeup for five minutes, and boom, you know we have we're, we sold everybody. But and and you know it 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 works, you know if you think you're getting a movie about, about heavy on curses and stuff. But you know you know who is awesome, Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce is awesome. Pierce studied photos of Seti the First Mummy to design Imhotep. Pierce began transforming Karloff at around like 11 a.m. in the morning. He applied cotton, collodion, uh, spirit gum, and all that's his face. He declayed his hair, and he wrapped him in linen bandages treated with acid. And he burnt, he burnt the bandages in an oven and then wrapped Karloff uh, up. And he finished the job about 7 p.m., so eight hours of doing that. Karloff would finish his scenes at two in the morning, and then another two hours were spent removing the makeup. So 10 hours of makeup and removal for seven hours of work. And he's only in the movie for five to 10 minutes. So you're telling me it took takes seven hours to do five to 10 minutes of film, and he's just standing there. So someone had to make a, make a mistake. I mean, that, it makes no sense to me, but what do I know about film? You know, what do I know? Uh, Karloff found the removal of gum from his face painful and overall found the day the most trying ordeal he had ever endured. It was even worse than the Frankenstein makeup, which he, he put on way more than this. So, whatever. <laughs> now, uh, like I said, although the images of Karloff wrapped in bandages are the most iconic Images taken from the, pil- the film, Karloff appears on screen in this makeup only like five minutes. The rest of the film sees him wearing pretty much no makeup and just looking like Boris Karloff with the fez. And so, yeah. Interesting fact here, though. In the film, there's this lengthy and detailed flashback sequence that is longer uh, than we got. So this sequence showed the various forms of uh, Ankh-Sunaman being reincarnated over the centuries. So the woman, the female that 
um, Imhotep wants to resurrect, there's actually some scenes of her being reincarnated over the centuries, and um, and it shows, you know, it shows her being re- resurrected, and uh, those scenes are lost. Like no one can find them. That film's missing. So we could have seen every time that she was resurrected and he was trapped in his tomb, unable to complete his task of bringing her back. That, that kind of would have been interesting. That, I mean, I don't like a lot of sympathy for monsters, um, but for the concept of they're going for the mummy, that, I mean, that's kind of the whole point. He wants his resurrected love. He would do anything for love. Um, I don't know. You know, it's 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 lost. Uh, another interesting thing is they use Swan Lake in the opening credits to this, just like they did Dracula. I guess when you're finally making movies with sound, you just want to keep using Swan Lake because that's what all the cool people do. Um, really weird. So that's how the movie was put together. Let's talk about why I'm disappointed. The movie begins in 1921. Uh, the story does with the archaeological expedition led by Sir Joseph Wemple. So the same time that that King Tut's um, tomb was was open. So this dude's uh, Sir Joseph Wemple, he finds the mummy of an ancient Egyptian high priest named Imhotep. An inspection of the mummy by Wemple's friend, Dr. Moeller, reveals that the mummy's organs were not removed. And that means... There's only one conclusion. This dude was buried alive. Okay, great start to the movie. You have my attention. Buried alive. That's creepy. That's scary. You got me. Um, and we can see Karloff's mummy in the background. He looks awesome. Like, he looks really cool. Um, he looks really creepy. Now, I like I can't wait to see what the monster does watching this movie. But and, and then they bring in this really cool part. They also have Muller with this casket from Imhotep, and it says on the outside, don't open the casket. There's a curse. Like, this is cool. You know someone's going to open it, and you're going to see some cool stuff. Like, I love I love curses. I love the concept of curses. I want to see everybody get cursed. <laughs> you know, I want to see this cool stuff. But they 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 don't they don't they don't really do that. Um so Sir Joseph's assistant, uh, Ralph, opens this and he finds the ancient life-giving scroll, uh, the Book of the Dead, or the scroll Toth. He translates the hieroglyphs and he decides to read this out loud like, like a complete idiot. This causes our boy Imhotep to rise from the dead and walk past this dude off the screen, never to be seen again by the people in the story or those watching the film. That's it. He's done. That's the mummy scene. That's it. That's all you get. Freaking stupid. Like, these are supposed to be universal monsters, not universal dude with a fez. You know, I know fezes are cool. You know, Doctor Who says they're cool. I love Doctor Who, but come on, man. Like, what the hell? Um, so anyway, this info of the mummy walking away, it snaps Norton's mind. He laughs hysterically as Imhotep shuffles off with the Book of the Dead or the, the Book of Toth. It drives him mad. It drives me mad. And <laughs> that's it. You know, you give five minutes of the monster. Uh, freaking stupid. So uh, Chuckles later dies. 
uh, still laughing in a straight jacket. So uh, this is important. So keep track of these timelines in this movies. So this happened in 1921. So now we're jumping to 10 years later. It's now 1932. Okay. So keep, keep that in mind. Keep in mind that these movies like to jump in time. Think about that. Okay. So this is now modern day. This is 1932. Uh, modern day when this movie came out. You know, try and make it some what realism. You know, what, what did the mummy do for the last 10 years? Well, Imhotep somehow take it, took his bandages off himself. He took the makeup off. And he's now an Egyptian historian. And he's a rich dude named Ardeth Bey. Ardeth. Um, it's kind of on the nose. Ardeth. He's looking him and his woman. Uh, who's, you know, whose death is this? Ardeth. Like, come on. It's whatever. Um, <laughs> so Dr. Death meets with Sir Joseph's son, Frank, and a professor Pearson and shows them where to dig to find the tomb of the princess. So they're all about this. I mean, this tomb, no one knows where this tomb is. So we're going to listen to this random Egyptian historian dude that we know nothing about. And yeah, we're just going to do it. So they locate the tomb. The archaeologists give its treasures to the Cairo Museum. And Bay soon meets Helen Grosvenor, who's a half-Egyptian woman uh, who bears a striking resemblance to his princess. Uh, you know, he's like, Helen? You don't look like a Helen. Helen, let me tell you why I suck as a universal monster. <laughs> so, uh, so our death, Ben Gay, he falls in love with her, uh, but so does, so does this Frankie kid. Uh, there's more boring stuff, and soon discovered that Death Ray over there is the mummy Imhotep. So Muller urges Joseph to burn that scroll of Toth, or to burn the Book of the Dead. Uh, and when Joseph tries to do so, uh, our Death Bay uses his magical powers to kill him. And he then hypnotizes a Nubian to be a slave and brings the scroll to him. So, um, yeah, whatever. So after the servant does so, you know, brings Helen to him, uh, you know, Bay's like, hey, girl, let's come to my place. Let's do some Netflix and chill or, you know, bury and kill. And he reveals to her that he was buried alive as punishment for sacrilege as he attempted to resurrect her. And to make his first days even better, he tells her that she is his lover reincarnated. Um, I don't think she likes him like that. She barely knows this guy. And he's 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 old. He looks old. Like, you're too old. <laughs> and I'm sure that she would do anything for love, but, but she's not going to do that. I mean, this isn't Henry Cavill. This isn't Ryan Gosling. This isn't James Cole. This is Boris Karloff. And not just Boris Karloff, but 3,000-year-old version of Karloff. I mean, he might have a 3,000-year plan, but with his old just skin and his old just gross, you know, they'll end up working at Hooters together. Uh, Ardeth here then attempts to make her his immortal bride by killing, mummifying, and resurrecting her. So uh, Mark and Muller come to her rescue, but are immobilized by Ardeth Bay 
and his stunning good looks. The men are useless, and Helen is saved when she remembers her past life and prays to the goddess Isis to come to her aid. The statue of Isis raises its arm, throws a flashbang like it's dang Rainbow Six, and basically sets the scroll of Toth on fire. The spell that given Imhotep his immortality is broken. The homie crumbles to dust. And, you know, because all we are is dust in the wind, dude. And Frankie then gets Helen back into the world of living while the scroll burns. So, yeah. So don't don't get me wrong here, okay? Um, Boris is amazing. This movie's not horrible. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of tension in it. It's not horrible. And I can't think it enough because it's plot and, and it's ideas. Um, you wouldn't have any mummy fr- franchise in the nineties with Steve Summers if it wasn't for this story, because Steven used him Hotep, he used, he used this as, as, you know, this basis, but the movie's boring. It's, it's just, it's, it's boring, man. Like there are no characters that are fun and relatable. Um, and I, I think this, I think the mummy story only works one way. It works as a horror action comedy. Those three genres mold together, make it work. And, and nothing like nothing else really, really makes it work. And they, because of, because of the success of son of Frankenstein sequel and the sequel to the visible man, uh, they decide to make a sequel to this, but it, like, it's not even a sequel. Like I can't even call it a sequel. It's, it's a reboot. It's a total freaking reboot. And, and it's done like about 10 years later, I think they did in 1942. They did it around when Wolf, like a little bit after Wolfman came out. Um, like, and they even hire uh, Lon Chaney Jr., who at this time is just calling himself Lon Chaney because his, his dad had passed away. Um, but, like, yeah, it's just, I'll, I'll just, I'll talk about it. So, they reboot it. I don't understand why. I couldn't find anything in any research of why they changed the mummy uh, to, to, to Charis. I don't know why this reboot happened. I couldn't find anything. If anybody knows anything, please, please reach out to me. I want to know why this reboot happened because it just, it drives me nuts because from, from here till Steven uh, Summers nineties movies, the mummy is is Karis or Charis. I'm sorry, Karis, K H A R I S, Karis. That's the mummy in the Hammer films too, and and I just I want to know why this change was happened. Like, did they want more intellectual property by using Karis? Uh, I think Karis is even in just in history. I I, I just I just want to know why this happened and. Uh, if someone knows, please, please reach out to me, please. Um, so this reboot is called The Mummy's Hand. Um, and in my opinion, it's the best of the classic mummy films. So if you only watch one classic mummy movie, I say you watch this. If you watch two, then watch the one uh, with Boris and you'll have continuity issues. Um, but this this mummy's hand was was great. I thought it was great because 
it has funny characters they're likable it's it's just a fun movie and and i talked to my boy tyler um i give a shout out to all my buddies in, in this podcast because they've been such a huge help um and and inspiration and just um they're they're family and i i i you know i love you guys um but tyler and i were talking and Tyler was in the previous episode with Dracula uh, with his wife, Junia. And Tyler, Tyler and I were talking, as we normally do, and he said something that sticks in my head. He said, he said that all horror movies or all horror turns to comedy. And that's really stuck in my head because I think he's right. Like a film or story might start as horror, but eventually they, they have to add something to keep it fresh or they just have to add something to make it comedic or, or they change the, the concept to a full comedy. And, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes it doesn't change, but like, like take the Halloween movies, for example, the Halloween movies, like when they did Halloween resurrection, they put in Buster Rhymes and Buster Rhymes drop kicks, Michael Myers. Like it's all comedic. Um, you know, and, and you know, Chucky, uh, Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger is the perfect example of what of what of this, because in the first movie, that's a horror movie, and the first movie is the best. I mean, Wes Craven, like it's 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 awesome, it's it's scary. I mean, like um, my wife, as a kid, she was like forced to watch these Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and like they scared the crap out of her. So. Um, you know, and and I was watching it the other night, and she's she she comes in the room and she says, you know, oh my, like that's pretty freaking scary when she sees Tina in the body bag dripping blood, and Nancy's um is having that dream, like, but Freddie turns to comedy just in the next movie, like it, it just. I think, but I think in terms of Universal Monsters, in terms of what I'm talking about, this first season of Gravely Musing, um, you know, Gravely Musing, horror and comedy together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I think that comedy works for, for the mummy because it gives you more relatable characters. You know, you have a charming archaeologist, it works. Uh, you need someone to like. So when they get cursed by the mummy, um, you feel the danger, you feel the excitement, you, you feel bad for them. Like one thing Tyler and I talked about is that if you don't like the characters and, 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 and maybe comedy does this, if you don't like the characters, then you root for the killer. It's just what happens. So yeah. So in the mummy thing, you need that Indiana Jones factor, uh, you need, in this case, the character Steve Banning, who is actually an inspiration for Indiana Jones. Um, this and the Somers movies take from this, and and from the original, this archaeologist character, and that's probably why I really liked it. So, so the Mummy's hand starts in Brooklyn, <laughs> or or in Egypt, or if, if you prefer, uh, they they talk about Brooklyn and Egypt, you know, whatever. And this dude, uh, uh, Endoheb travels to the hill of the seven jackals cool name i really love it uh it's in egypt and he answers a summon to the high priest of karnak so get used to this scene 
because you're going to see this scene cut and pasted the next the next uh three no four four movies you're going to see this in four more movies um or yeah no three three more you're going to see in a lot more movies it, they they do this scene four freaking times um it's cut and paste it's it's stupid so this dying priest uh is the leader of the cult of Chorus. And once again, I have no clue why this was changed to Karis, uh, why the reboot, but but whatever. So this dying dude explains the story of Karis to, to Enoheb. Uh, it's cut and paste of the Imhotep story, uh, except some changes, which, which I thought they were kind of interesting. Uh, so 3,000 years ago, blah, 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 Prince Karis had secretly loved Prince, Princess Annika, which is a lot easier to pronounce. So. Thank you for changing that name. Um, so, so, uh, so, so, uh, Carface stole sacred life-giving tana leaves and was caught before he could use them to restore her life. Karis's penalty was to be buried alive. So they rip out his tongue from his butt, and the tana leaves are buried with him. Now, why would you bury the one thing that he was trying to steal with him? Like, he gets what he wants. Like, okay, whatever. And especially, these Tana leaves can resurrect the freaking dead. They are the elixir of life. Why would you bury it with the freaking dude you're burying alive? Um, I guess so the movie can happen. You know, that's why. It's so, <laughs> so this, uh, this, cult ex- this cult exists because they recovered uh, him, Karis, and they kept him alive as the protector of Annika's tomb. So during the full moon, uh, the fluid, you know, I, you know, flu full moon, you know, like, like werewolves, and you have Lon Chaney in here, so I guess it makes sense. Um, but every full moon, the fluid from the brew of three tunnel leaves will be administered to Karis to keep him alive. Uh, now these t- these leaves are not grown anywhere else. They're only grown uh, in there, and I don't know where the hell they get them or how they grow more. I, I don't know, whatever. But um, so three leaves will keep them alive on the full moon. If anyone is ent- to enter the tomb of the princess, a fluid of nine leaves will restore movement to Karis, and he can protect it, and he can kill people that. Uh, desecrate her tomb. If you give him more than nine leaves, he will not be controllable. Um, he cannot be used as a weapon. So now we go to Cairo, to Cairo, Cairo, Egypt, and we meet down on his luck archaeologist Indiana Jones, or at this time he called himself Steve Banning, and we meet his idiot psychic Babe Johnson. Uh, he's very much like Abba and Costello with these two. And I like it. It, it works. They are fun. They have good chemistry. Um, so these two discover a broken vase in a bazaar. Banning is convinced it is authentic ancient Egypt relic, Egyptian relic. And his interpretation of the hieroglyphs on the piece leads him to believe it contains clues to the location of Princess Annika's tomb. Banning visits that priest from earlier who misleads him about the importance of the vase and drops and breaks it on purpose. With the support of the famous Dr. Petri of the Cairo Museum 
and against the wishes of Enoheb, who's also the professor of Egyptology at the museum, the guy that broke the vase, uh, Banning sinks funds for his expedition. So I, I got to take a break here. Um, so if they're trying to protect the tomb, then why are they selling vases in a bazaar? Um, so I found something about this movie I don't like. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I found something. Um, why are they selling vases in a, in a jar so that people will have an expedition um, and thus disturb, disturb the tomb? Like, do they have to keep feeding Chorus people to kill? Like, is it's, oh yeah, it's so the movie can happen. <laughs> you know, okay, whatever. You know, I'll get off all of my back off that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> so Bang and Jensen meet a magician named Solvani who agrees to fund their quest in return for a share of the spoils of the tomb. Uh, Solvani is actually, uh, or yeah, Solvani is from Brooklyn like Babe, and Babe tries to trick him uh, with a card trick so that he buys everybody uh, a drink. So uh, this part's actually pretty cool. It's it's a fun introduction to, to the Solvani character. Um, it's fun. And then out of nowhere, some one of the uh, Anohebs henchmen bumps into to Banning, I think. And Banning breaks a chair over his back, and there's this big fight. And then Banning, uh, after he hits him with the chair, he pins him one, two, three, wins the hardcore title. It's pretty cool. And it turns out this Solvani's guy uh, has a hot daughter named Marta. And she's not convinced of this investment, thanks to a prior visit from that cult guy, that, that uh, priest dude. Uh, she said, and the priest told her that they're, you know, the two guys are frauds. But the expedition happens so that the movie can happen. A lot of plot holes in this, but, you know, I still liked it. Uh, so they go in search of the hill of the seven jackals. They stumble upon the tomb of Karas, and they find the mummy and the ton of leaves, but nothing to indicate the existence of Annika's tomb. The priest dude surprised Dr. Petri in the mummy's cave and has the doctor feel the creature's living pulse. Uh, after the cult guy gives the ton of brew from the nine leaves to Karas, the monster quickly kills Petri and gives him a choke slam with one hand. Karas the mummy, who's in this film for more than five minutes, thank you, Escapes with uh, Anubheb, that priest dude, through a secret passage to the temple on the other side of the mountain. Uh, the mummy walks about the camp, strangling every person he sees. Uh, the Egyptian overseer Ali, and he kills him. He attacks Silvani, and then um, he kidnaps Martyr because, you know, you got to You got to do that. So Banning and Babe Ruth set out to track Charles down. And with Babe going around the mountain, Banning attempts to follow this secret passage they have discovered inside the tomb. A scary Egyptian guy has plans of his own, though. He thinks Marta is pretty hot. So he plans to inject himself uh, with the tea juice and uh, making him and Marta immortal. But uh, Babe Jensen, he arrives in the nick of time. He shoots the scary Egyptian priest dude. And self-defense, you know, so it holds up in court. And Banning uh, rescues Marta. But wait! Karis appears on the scene and they fight! 
Banning shoots the bastard, but bullets have no effect on the mummy. Then, Marta remembers she overheard Priest Dude describe the secret of the ton of fluid and tells Bang and Jensen that cars must not be allowed to drink that drink that stuff. So uh, the creature, when the creature raises his arm to drink more of the fluid, Jensen shoots the container, it falls to the floor, showers to a billion in pieces. He threw it on the ground. Cars attempts to ingest the spilling life liquid on the floor because of the five-second rule. Uh, Banning torches the monster, engulfing it in flames. And in the end, the team steal, steals the diamonds from the princess's tomb, and they go back to the United States rich. So uh, this is now where these <laughs> movies go down, downhill. Um, and maybe it's not the studio's fault. I mean, like, how much can you do with a walking bandage guy and not having any CGI at the time? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you could focus on these curses. And you can have Jack Pierce putting boils on people. You can have like fake bugs running around, like scary, creepy stuff. But uh, you know, they 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 didn't think of that. So the mummy's hand took place in 1940. This next movie, The Mummy's Tomb, takes place 30 years after the previous film. So this is supposed to be 1970 at this time. And we meet Banning again, and he's like 60, and he lives in Massachusetts. Um, and in this hour-long film, we spend the first 10 minutes recapping the last movie. Then we spend another 10 minutes redoing the same dang scene from the last movie with the old high priest and his successor. So already, we have copied and pasted 20 minutes of, a, of an hour movie. We have 40 minutes left. What the F word. <laughs> the main plot of this movie, though, has them using the mummy cars to hunt down the Banning family for revenge for desecrating the tomb. Um, so Karis was burned. Did someone put him out? Like, uh, the priest wasn't there. Uh, like, what? I don't know. I guess the priest put him out. Whatever. This movie sucks. It's It's, it's trash. I mean, yeah, the mummy is like a threat in it, but no character is is, is interesting. And Banning dies, and he was like your only interesting character you had. Like, it's a total cut and paste. Um, at the end of the movie, the whole town sees the mummy. The whole town sees him, and there's a battle on the balcony of the home, and the mummy catches fire again. Like, fire is the only thing to stop this thing for for like a year. Like, it didn't work. Like, come on. Stop giving me fire for the mummy. So, the next mummy sequel, it's called The Mummy's Ghost. And it has the same dang opening of that priest. Like, they do it again. It's cut and paste. Cut and paste. And this movie takes place maybe a year or two after the last film. So, now we're in, like, 1970, like, 1972, 74, maybe. You know, whatever. Um, Karis is back now, and he's not better than ever. Uh, fire does nothing to this dude, though. And basically, Annika's soul is in a new Egyptian chick. So we're bringing back stuff from Imhotep with the soul being in the chick. We're going to bring that back because, you know, why not? Um, the priest likes her. Uh, he likes this new chick. Karis wants her back. 
Uh, some dude is her boyfriend. There's like a four-way love triangle. Nobody really cares. Blah, blah, blah. Some leaves. Blah, blah, blah. Strangle that dude. Strangle her. Blah, blah. Uh, the movie does have an interesting twist ending, though, because the mummy Karis has uh, the chick that's like, you know, the reincarnatica. And he walks into a swamp while he's being chased. And as he walks into the swamp, um, uh, she, uh, she, the body that he's holding, ages into a mummy. So now the soul of Annika is now in this body and they're trapped in the swamp and they, and they, and they walk in it. So Annika is back with Karis. So what do we do? We make another sequel. And we call it The Mummy's Curse, even though we're not going to really do anything with curses. Um, we're, we're, you know, this it, it's, it's stupid. I, I feel like I'm cursed watching these films, but I love Universal Monsters and I had to study them. And I, I want you to I want you to know what's good. I want you to know what's bad. So <laughs> this movie, this last one takes place 25 years after the last one. So if my timeline is right, this movie takes place in like 1996 and I was 10 in 96. And I assure you, this movie is nothing like the nineties, not even close. Like I would rather this movie not to happen. We keep the same timeline. We wait three years and then Steven Summers movies here because this movie being 96, it makes no sense. These time jumps are bad. Uh, it's just, it's stupid. Now, this movie starts again with the scene you're probably familiar with. It's the old priest. And maybe I'm wrong and it doesn't start with the old priest, but they all blur together. Like, I know this scene's happened at least three times. And the final time you see this scene, whether it was in this one or the last one, the high priest is like shaking around like crazy. Um, like, he's just shaking the whole time. I guess he's trying to sell that he's like super old, but it's almost kind of offensive. Like my grandfather had Parkinson's and um, he shook and like, uh, this is kind of offensive. It does. It does. It doesn't pull up, pull it up. It doesn't. It's, I don't like it. Uh, like, so in this movie, Karis and Annika are around and this movie, like this movie just sucks. It, it's not worth it. It's, it's trash. And I looked at the reviews of these movies as it came out, and the mummy is often considered by critics as the weakest of the monsters. Like in terms of term, in terms of interest and excitement, the mummy barely has any. And and I and I can't disagree with this because they just don't do it right, man. And it's simple, like it's what Stephen Sommers do. I I know, like I love Stephen Sommers. I I like I know, I know because because he understood that you have to make it like Indiana Jones. You have to make it like that mummy's hand. Like you have to, like you have to do it. Indiana Jones meets a mummy story. you got to have the book of the dead. you got to have real magic, real curses and real threats. And if the mummy has an army of the dead with them, that's freaking awesome. And if you throw in more Egyptian lore, other than like lost reincarnated loves, like it's awesome. And I want to see this Egyptian dude like a, like a god. Like I want to. <sighs> Somers is the blueprint. He's a blueprint when it comes to mummy. It's the blueprint. Like I want to see action and tomb raiding, and like crazy scenes of a real threat. And 
in 2017's Mummy, like they showed threats and they showed crazy stuff. Yeah, okay, they did. You're right. You're right. They did. But that movie was meant to create the dark universe. And I was so excited about the dark universe. Oh, man. Oh, I'm so excited just thinking about the concept. Um, a shared universe of monster movies like Universal tried to do back in the day. Like they they tried to do it. And, and they were the first kind of like cinematic universe. But they blew it because they kept same actors for other roles. Uh, they had no continuity. They they rebooted and stuff. Like, it just, I know it was the 30s and 40s. I know. I know. And they didn't have that type of mind of creativity that we have today to see to see what it could be. But the Dark Universe, I mean, it was, oh, my gosh. That photo of Javier, Javier Borum to, to be Frankenstein's monster and Johnny freaking Depp as an Invisible Man, Russell Crowe, Dr. Jekyll. I mean, come on. That's so much talent. That's exciting. That is awesome. And and they had a female mummy, uh, at least that they advertised with, like, like this was potential. This was something. And they screwed it all up because they chose Tom Cruise. Because Tom Cruise can sell any movie. I mean, Tom Cruise freaking sold The Flash. The Flash made about a billion dollars, didn't it? Because, the, because Tom Cruise saw it and said it was amazing. But it wasn't because Tom Cruise is not going to sell all movies. Tom Cruise can make a good movie. He can. He can. He's like the he's he's like the lax action hero, really. You know, they should just remake it and throw him in there. Um, even though Arnold's you know the freaking man. But like, but when you have Tom in a movie, Tom. Tom does not he does not get rid of control. He he doesn't. It's it becomes a Tom Cruise focused film. And anybody that says the mummy in 2017 was any good, I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> like the, the only good parts in it were the story of the female mummy, and she was far more interesting than than anything they were trying to do with Tom Cruise. And to to make her give the mummy ability to Tom Cruise to be the new mummy was is, is ridiculous because it makes it all about Tom and Tom's character wasn't interesting enough. Like this isn't, you know, he, he wasn't maverick, you know, he, he wasn't the vampire Lestat. Like it just doesn't work. It's a bad call. Um, you can't no. it makes it too Tom Cruise focus. And if you think that, Tom would have gave some power away when they did like a joint movie with Javier and Johnny and all. No freaking way. Him and Johnny would have butted heads. And yeah, making something. No, Tom. No, no, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. No. <laughs> um, and, and, but I think they should have still went with the dark universe even though this that movie didn't do very well and they, they took a big loss, they did. But they laid so much groundwork. And this was pre-COVID, bro. This was pre-COVID. So people would still go to the movie theaters. People would still watch this. And it wasn't the streaming area it was now. Like it would have made money. If you would have delivered with those actors, it would have made money. But because you had Tom Cruise as the as the mummy, like you 
bad call. <laughs> um, if they would have like continued with the Dark Universe and dropped Javier Bourne and Frankenstein in 2019, we could have had something because 2020, uh, even though COVID was coming out, we had that Invisible Man movie and it didn't have Johnny Depp. It didn't. They, you know, Bloomhouse did a different direction. Bloomhouse, you know, different studio. But if Bloomhouse can do the Universal Monsters, freaking awesome. I'll take it. But there's just something about the Universal Monsters, some magic in that, that I don't, I don't even, I, like, Universal started off strong. And, but when the mummy came around, they lost it, man. They, they lost it. They lost what they built with Frankenstein and Dracula. They really did. And, and they, and when, but until the wolf, until Invisible Man came out, uh, they lost it. Invisible Man really helped. And especially Wolfman. Like, whew, yeah. Um, but if they would just had better people in charge, I think, I think they, that it would have worked. Um, you know, and, cause kids these days, like, they don't know these monsters. They don't know these universal monsters and they're missing out. Like I talked to, um, I talked to my younger, younger coworkers and younger friends and like, they never seen 1931 Dracula. They never seen 1931 Frankenstein. They don't know these old black and white black and white is kind of boring to them, but there is, there's so much magic and wonderfulness in these movies. And that's the whole point of what I want to share with you guys. Like, you know, I want to share my love of monsters. Um, and I want to share why, what works and what doesn't like, that's the whole point of gravely amusing. Um, let's continue this discussion on Twitter or on our Facebook page. I want to, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, I hope that you learned something about universal's mummy. I hope that you at least watched the mummy's hand. It was awesome. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. I hope that I thrilled you. I I hope that maybe I horrified you. But most of all, I hope you release gravely abused. Good night, everybody.